The title for today's sermon is The Unfaithful Steward Identified and is taken from Luke chapter 16, verses 14 through 18. If you're here for the first time, uh, let me share with you that I am an exegetical expository preacher, which means I preach through the Bible verse by verse and try to explain its meaning to those who received it and its application to us today. When the writers wrote Holy Writ, there was only one meaning. But there are many applications. We've been traveling through the book of Luke. We've arrived at chapter 16. And to understand this text, I'm going to need you to put on your thinking caps. Think a little bit deeper today than normal. So let's ask God to guide and direct us through his Holy Spirit that we might understand this text and apply it to our lives correctly. Would you bow with me for prayer? Father, we thank you so much for Holy Writ. We thank you that you have not left us as orphans, blind with no guide, but that you have given us the Spirit of God to enlighten our minds, to show us the truth of Scripture, to accurately understand it, and to live godly in this present world as we await the return of our Lord Jesus Christ in power and glory. Help us, Lord, to live as you would have us live. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Two weeks ago, right before Jeff Welch returned to Word of Life Bible Institute for the spring semester, I asked him to go to the movies with me. The film we saw that night was entitled The Hunger Games, Catching Fire. One I'm sure that you've heard about sometime. During the film, Jeff looked completely lost. Several times he leaned over and said to me that he just wasn't getting it. When I learned that he had not read the series of children's books or seen the first film, I understood. Well, after the film ended, I asked him what he thought, how he enjoyed it. He said that he really didn't know. So I then shared how the film was meant to be a warning against the dangers of big government. The big brother, big brother mentality that has usurped the control of a nation from its people. Recently, we've seen some glimpses of that in our own nation. We've seen the CIA leaker Edward Snowden, who released all sorts of damaging information to WikiLeaks about the PRISM program. And we've seen the CIA spying on the American people, eavesdropping on our phone calls and reading our emails. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the implementation of the current police state in America. Have you ever asked yourself why the local police need to be decked out in tactical military armor, carry the latest lethal weapons that are used on battlefields, or why they arrive at a dispute in an armored-up vehicle? What is this, the Soviet Union or Iraq? Well, the Hunger Games is an obvious polemic against the horrors of allowing an unchecked government institute a dystopian society which is defined by an elitist group, an oligarchy, to meet its whims and purposes. The rule of the minority over the majority is implemented by a program of oppression. The legalized oppression which leads to misery, starvation, and death for those who will not accede to its control. And the control mechanism that they use is the fear of an all-powerful state. Well, that's what The Hunger Games is about. The truth is, I like movies. I like to read books, especially those that challenge me to think deeper. 
Some books and films carry messages that are embedded within them that aren't apparent on the surface. There are many examples of this. Many of these books and films you have seen and maybe really didn't understand. Did you know that The Wizard of Oz was written not as a children's novel, but as a subtle morality tale about the abuse of the common people by an all-powerful Washington? That's who the Wizard of Oz was, representative of the president. The ruby slippers in the film were not really ruby. They were supposed to be silver, as in the book, and they represented the silver standard, which had been discarded by a progressive administration. And the result was the markets of the Midwestern farmers and the ranchers had been crushed by the higher taxes that were implemented and by the markets that shut down. There are many examples of books and movies that cause us to think deeper, to Think beyond what's face value. Other examples of this genre would be Animal Farm, 1984, Atlas Shrugged, Alice in Wonderland, Babette's Feast, one of my favorites, and the Chronicles of Narnia. What I'd like to suggest to you this morning is this, that parts of the Bible are to be understood in much the same way. So today as we look at the text Four short verses, I'd like you to think deeper than what appears on the surface. In Luke chapter 16, we find two short stories called parables, which are shared by an itinerant preacher. On the surface, they just appear to be good advice for his followers to follow. But if we look between the lines, if we dig a bit deeper below the surface, I think you'll be surprised by what we find. Last week, you'll recall, as we examine the first parable found in Luke chapter 16, I I presented a straightforward, literal interpretation of the text. In it, Jesus spoke to the disciples, the twelve plus others, about an unfaithful steward who had shrewdly prepared for his future after being fired from his position by subtly stealing from his master before he was terminated. Luke now gives us a brief interval of four verses before moving on to the next parable. This short interlude of enigmatic statements seems to be completely out of, out of place by most commentators. The question is, how does this material relate to that which preceded it and that which follows it? What does this parabolic teaching of Jesus have to do with these four verses? In other words, why does Luke place this material here after the parable of the unfaithful steward. I think there is a demonstrable and logic of a deeper meaning that is found in this text that Jesus is presenting. As you know from last week, our quality of eternal life will depend. It's entwined with the choices that we make in this life. How we spend our monies will determine how we live in the time that is to come. Now, for those who were in Hackensack last week or Peoria or Loba Linda, let me review a bit for you. The title I pro-offered for last week's text, the first 13 verses of chapter 16, was the parable of the unfaithful steward. That's not found usually in the pericopes of most Bibles. I suggested that would be a better title or pericope than usually is put forward. Some have it as the cheating manager or the shrewd slave, but I entitled it the unfaithful steward for a very good reason. There is a key word that is found in verse 2 of chapter 16, and I mentioned that last week. This key word is the Greek term oikonomia. 
O-I-K-O-N-O-M-I. A, for those who would like to know. It refers to a manager of a household, a steward who was responsible for running an estate. When it's used as a verb, oikonomia means the managing, the administrating, the overseeing of another person's property. But it can also refer to and is used in the Bible specifically of a dispensation or administration. We might call it the Obama oikonom the Obama dispensation or the Obama administration. The word is used 10 times in the New Testament. Five of those occurrences are right here in Luke chapter 16, which makes this chapter very important for those of us who call ourselves dispensationalists. So then this text is critical to our understanding of the methodology of which we use to interpret the Bible. What it is and how it is defined is found in chapter 16. Well, let me give you a casual or a just brief uh, definition of a dispensation or an oikonomia. It is a state of progressive revelation which is adapted to the needs of a peculiar nation or a time period. Now, this will all crystallize for you in just a few minutes. In other words, a dispensation identifies a particular time or a period in which a specific system prevails. The first parable in Luke, in the first 13 verses, deals with a household steward who rules over an estate, a dispensation, if you will. That's why the word is used there. His administration or dispensation reveals deeper truths about the process of biblical interpretation that we call dispensationalism as a system. This chapter details specific characteristics of a dispensation. We find them fleshed out for us in this story of a steward. I'd like to share a few of those characteristics before I get into the text this morning. In a large household or estate, as this steward managed, we find one party who has authority to delegate duties to another. In the case of this parable, it was the landowner, a rich man, delegating to his steward certain tasks and obligations. The steward was to run the estate, to pay the bills, to get the money from the sharecroppers or the renters. And the steward also watched over the landowner's children. It's generally agreed by most commentators that the landowner is representative of God the Father. Secondly, there is another party who is tasked with carrying out those duties, that being obviously the steward. He's assigned these duties by the master of the estate of God. As you know, in this parable, the steward fails completely in carrying out his fiduciary responsibilities as the master's representatives. He can enter into contracts with the renters. He can buy and purchase and pay bills, all on his own authority. Consequently, when he's found to be unfaithful, the landowner, God, if you will, fires him for his unfaithfulness. In these kinds of relationships, there always must be some level of accountability and responsibility that are integral to the administration or the dispensation. The steward is given the task, the responsibility of running and managing the administration of the landowner's land. And he's going to be held accountable for it. When the steward fails, he is judged for it. He is judged for it by being dismissed, fired, if you will. This obviously leads to a change of administration as a judgment for his unfaithfulness. 
Another steward is appointed in his place and given authority over the estate. So then, how do these four verses following this parable relate to it? Are they just independent, arbitrary sayings stuck in here by Luke because he's not got any other place to put them, as some commentators on the Bible offer? I believe that Luke has carefully assembled these verses to teach us the way that God is administrating over this earth through the epochs of time that have passed and will pass. Now, I'm sure that's all as clear as mud to you. So let me try to make it a little bit more digestible for you by giving you some specific examples of dispensations, time periods, or epochs from the Bible. All we need to do is look back at God's household in the Garden of Eden. There was Adam and Eve, who were given the task of stewardship to oversee the garden. They were to follow the one command that God gave them. And they failed. And when they failed, that task or administration was given to another. But first they were judged. They were expelled from the garden. Another example would be Abraham, who was given the task of moving to the land of Canaan and dwelling there and multiplying. That was the task given to him by the Lord. But he, when a famine came, got up and moved his family to Egypt. He disobeyed. He failed at his task. And the result was that Abraham and the Jews were in bondage in Egypt for 400 years. The next example brings us to where we are at in our text. The nation of Israel was given the task of living by the law. By understanding the law and the prophets, they were given the law by God from the mountain at Mount Sinai, and the nation was to obey it. But it wasn't long before the nation of Israel was breaking the law and changing it and modifying it for their own suits and needs. So in this text that we examine this morning, Jesus is speaking to religious leaders who have twisted and turned the word of God for their own enrichment. The resulting judgment, for those who are historians, know that in 70 A.D., the Jews were crushed and expelled from Israel and scattered throughout the world. So then, with that as our introduction, would you turn with me to page 1044 of our Pew Bible, if you need to borrow one. You can find them underneath your seat or behind you if you didn't bring one with you, or follow along with me in the text. Luke chapter 16, page page 1044 in the Pew Bible, verse 14. Now, I ask you to follow along so that you can see that what I am saying is in full agreement with what the text is saying by Luke. Let's begin our search for deeper meaning, deeper truth by looking at verse 1 where Luke writes, Now the Pharisees, the Pharisees were lovers of money. We're listening to all these things that Jesus said and we're scoffing at him. Here the Pharisees are being used as a model, a prototype of all of those who reject the truth of God. I'd like you to notice that Luke has transitioned here from one audience to another. If you were here last week, you saw that the parable spoken by Jesus was given to his disciples. Now clearly he's no longer speaking to his disciples, but is directing this message to the Pharisees whom he says are lovers of money. The one thing that you can say about the Pharisees is that they were characterized by a love for money. You can go ahead and put that up. Thank you. So what does that mean? They were lovers of money. In in the Jewish mindset, they believed that the blessing of God 
was indicated by the wealth of an individual. These religious elites, the Pharisees, the scribes, and all the others, thought that they were being blessed by God because they had money. They professed to be trusting in God, but they measured their value by the money that they had, by their possessions. Far too many believers are doing the same thing today. They honor the Lord with with their lips, but not with their wealth. Now notice the kinds of these kinds of religious folk don't live in a, ba- in a vacuum. For they heard exactly what Jesus was saying to them. We read they were listening to all these things that Jesus said, is the implication. And what were they doing? They were scoffing at him. That's an interesting word. The Pharisees were scoffing at the Lord of glory. I believe this is a common human response to truth that exposes one's sin. When one comes under conviction, we tend to dismiss that conviction, conviction, or we ridicule it, or we just sneer at it. Notice that these were religious men who were sneering and scoffing at Jesus. The Greek term that's used there is far more than scoffing. It talks about a hostility. It literally means to turn one's nose up. As you know, these same religious leaders had previously rejected the ministry of John the Baptist. They stood by and they allowed Herod to behead John without saying a word. Now they continue in that same vein. They're rejecting the ministry of Jesus. And ultimately they will seek the crucifixion of Christ by the Romans. This reveals the antipathy that the Pharisees had for Jesus. They're following him around, not to learn from him, but to entrap him in his own words. So they eavesdrop upon him at every opportunity. They listen to even his most intimate conversations between his friends and himself. And here they laugh at him and they mock him. It's absurd to me to think that the blessings of God could be evidenced by such people as the Pharisees. They thought they were righteous. They thought that they were good with God, if you will, because of their money and because of their position. They took it so far to laugh at the Son of God. Can you imagine being there at this time as Jesus is speaking? The Pharisees are probably rolling their eyes at Jesus when he talks about their wealth and how they're to give it to God rather than hoard it for themselves. And the Lord, of course, he saw this as well. Look at verse 15. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. But God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Isn't that an interesting response by Jesus? I don't know if they were rolling their eyes, but I do know they said nothing. And yet Jesus responds to them. He sees their scoffing. Maybe he hears some mumbling, but Jesus knows their hearts. After all, he is God. Our Lord is not impressed by the outward appearances of the Pharisees. Their fancy clothes, the money they might have tossed around, their wealth. But the Pharisees were impressed with themselves. (laughs) 
They believed they were more righteous than other people because of their position and their money. So they justified themselves, says the text. They justified themselves not only in their own eyes, but in the eyes of other men. People in that culture looked up to the Pharisees. After all, they followed the law down to the minutest detail, and they were wealthy. They had money. They had power. They measured others in the externals. You see, the Pharisees did all the right things. They dressed the right way. They lived in the right places. They said all the right things. But they were pious snobs in their behavior and actions, and they were detestable to God. But they were justified, they thought, not by God, but by their wealth. Well, the Lord knows the hearts of men, as I said. And he pierces through all that, that cover of self-righteous motivation. And the Pharisees could see this, if not feel it or understand it or perceive it in some way. These men who live by the principles of the world rather than the principles of Scripture, these men who measured their self-worth by their money were being rejected by God. The book of Proverbs says this, There is a way which seems right unto man, but in its end it leads to death. If you live by the world's values, whether or not you cover yourself in religiosity, if you live by the world's values, if you seek money, if you seek position, if you seek the things of this world, you will be at odds with God. The Lord Jesus condemns the world system when he says this, For that which is highly esteemed among men, what's highly esteemed among men? Money, wealth, position, is detestable in the sight of God. Our Lord Jesus didn't even have a place to lay his head. So what these Pharisees were doing was detestable to God. And what was it that they were doing? They were not only justifying themselves before men by their wealth, but by the keeping of the law. By the law. Now Jesus is the author of all scripture and he's the ultimate judge that all men will stand before at some point in time in the future. But this is repugnant to God, to trying to justify yourselves by the keeping of the law. The Pharisees simply assumed because they were Jews and because they kept the law that they were right with God. After all, the Jews had the temple, the priesthood, the law of Moses, They were called the children of Israel. They deserved the blessings of God. Well, they lived with this false assumption. They lived with the idea that they were right with God because of their money. They believed that was a sign of God's approval, but Jesus tells them that is not true. If they had just studied their own book, if they had just looked back to the law, they would have seen that God blessed the lives of many people who did not have money but were poor. And so was Jesus, poor. The Lord turns the focus in this text from their understanding of the law to a true understanding of it. Jesus will use the law here to show them their self-righteousness, that their self-righteousness was rooted in keeping a false understanding of the law. Think about it for a moment. What's this chapter all about? Isn't it about the unfaithful steward who was covetousness? It was identified by covetousness. He coveted his owner's money, land, and wealth, and he stole it. And yet these are the very men who twist and turn the purpose of the law to enrich themselves, just like the unfaithful steward. 
Jesus will expose them for their hypocrisy. Look with me at verse 16 where Jesus clarifies their sinful attitudes by their rejection of him. Jesus says, the law and the prophets prophets were proclaimed, get this now, until John. Since that time, that is the time of John, the gospel of the kingdom has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. I say this every week, or at least it seems like I too. I do, and that is that this is a very difficult verse to understand and interpret. There's going to be a lot of technical work that we need to do if we're to understand this. So if you've been sleeping up to now, it's time to wake up. Jesus says that the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Well, we might ask, what is the law and the prophets? What does that mean? That was a shorthanded way by Jesus to speak of the whole of the Old Testament. The law was the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, the Pentateuch, and the prophets were covering the rest of the writings up to the point in time of the life of Christ. For the law then and the prophets included the whole Old Testament, including prophets like Samuel and Jonah and Isaiah and etc. The Old Testament began with the story of Abraham being called to be the first Jew. And it concludes, according to Jesus in this text, with the prophet John. Now, who is John? Which John is this? John was a very popular name in biblical days. Well, obviously, from the context of the book of Luke, this has to be John the Baptist the man who was the forerunner, the man who announced the arrival of the Messiah, the man who pointed to Christ and said he came to seek and to save that which was lost, the Lamb of God. Please look at the important phrase in this verse which says, since that time. There's been a change. There's been a change in administration from the previous oikonomias, the dispensation of the law and the prophets to the preaching of, it's described here as the kingdom of God. As you'll recall, as we've gone through the book of Luke, you've seen that. John came preaching, saying that the kingdom of God was at hand. Jesus said that the kingdom of God was near. There's been a change. There's a kingdom that's coming. John pronounced that Jesus was the king. But a king needs land. A king needs a people to rule over. So Jesus came offering himself to be the king of Israel, but the people needed to accept him as their king. And as you and I know, they refused to do so. This was exemplified by the religious leaders, including the Pharisees, who not only rejected him, but plotted against him and finally had him crucified. Now, I need to make one correction to this verse. If you will notice in most of your Bibles... It says something like this. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached. But I want you to know that phrase, the gospel, is not found in the original Greek text. In many translations, like the one that I prefer, the New American Standard, the Revised Standard, the English Version, the term gospel or good news has been inserted there by the translators because they think it helps the reader to better understand. But this word is not found in the Greek manuscripts. One of the surprises that I had as I studied for this text was to find out that the 
Good old King James Version got it right. The translators there didn't supply or modify the verb usualizo, which means to preach or to proclaim. It's a verb. So this text should read this way. Since the law and the prophets were proclaimed, the old dispensation, the kingdom of God has been preached, the new dispensation. As I said, the Jews rejected the offer of Jesus to be king, to initiate the physical kingdom of a thousand years upon the earth in which the Lord would reign from Jerusalem. They refused that. They rejected him as the king. So it has been been postponed, as you know, till after the tribulation period, which ends at the beginning of the return of Jesus Christ. So, the period of the law ends and the kingdom does not begin as it could have. So instead, there's been this interval, which we call the age of grace, the church age. So we have the household being run by the law and the prophets, and that failed. And then the kingdom of God was to ensue, but it was rejected by the people of Israel. And so the next dispensation began, which is the age of grace, the church age. So John came to announce the king, came to announce the beginning of his kingdom. It was at hand, it was near, but it was rejected. So here we find three different distinct dispensations in salvation history articulated by Luke in this text. Another way to say that is that there are three different stewards over the household of God. The first steward was the law and the prophets, which failed. The next steward was to be the king and his kingdom, but it was rejected. And so it was preempted by a third kingdom, uh, a third dispensation called the age of grace. We even see the millennial kingdom or dispensation in this text as well. So what we see here next is an interesting phrase that Luke puts in that has had many people scratching their head. He says, everyone was forcing his way into it. What does that mean? The idea here, I believe, is that those people who had traditionally been reflected by the religious elites of Israel, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the uh, Sanhedrin, and others, they rejected the people like the tax collectors, the lame, the sinners, the Gentiles. But now they were storming the gates, if you will, to get into the kingdom. They were following Jesus and hanging on his every word. They were forcing their way into it. But the religious elite wouldn't have any of this. Jesus didn't fit their paradigm, if you will, and it didn't certainly include those people like the lame, the deaf, the blind, the sinners, the tax collectors, and the Gentiles. They believed the way to God was through formalism, legalism, and traditionalism. The Pharisees missed the basic message of the law itself, and they missed the message that Jesus came preaching, that they were to depend upon God rather than self. So you might be wondering, what was the value of the law? We find that answer in the writings of Paul when he says that the law was designed to be our schoolmaster, our tutor, to bring us to Christ. 
Even when there is a change of stewardship, the law functions in the same way. It speaks of the moral truth of God, which has never been discarded. There was a problem, however. The Pharisees claimed to be the protectors of the law, the keepers of the law, the preeminent scholars of the law. But Jesus exposes them to be the hypocrites that they were and that their obedience was simply a sham. So still, still, Jesus affirms the value of the law in verse 17. Look with me there. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away, to be burned up, to be gone, than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Jesus honors the law. The Mosaic law was the fullest expression of the moral truth of God for all people. We know that the Ten Commandments are a pithy expression of the moral will of God. And yet the Apostle Paul instructs the Galatians that the law has been fulfilled in this dispensation. In verse 3, he says that no one is justified by the law. In Galatians chapter 3, in verse 3, he says, no one is justified by the law. If you think keeping the Ten Commandments is going to get you to heaven, you are mistaken my dear one, because Jesus came fulfilling the law and Paul says no one is justified by the law before God, which is evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. I hope you got it. No one's justified by the law. The Pharisees were not justified by the law and you will not be justified by keeping the law because keeping the law is impossible. It was our schoolmaster, our tutor, to bring us to Christ, to show us our sinfulness. The Pharisees believed that they were justified before men and God by keeping the law. I know what Paul would say to that. He would say, Meganetto, may it never be. He tried that route himself and failed. In fact, Paul will say to the Romans about the law, where's your boasting? Is it excluded by what kind of law or works? No, but by the law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. In this passage, however, Jesus says the law will be fulfilled. It will not fail. Every small dot and tittle of the law will, will come to be. Now, if you don't know Hebrew or if you don't know anything about that, the smallest strokes of a Hebrew letter, much like our dotting of an I or the crossing of a T, that's what a stroke and tittle would be, those will be fulfilled, says the Lord Jesus Christ. And the point here is simple. The law will be fulfilled and cannot go void. Jesus did not come to nullify the law. He came to fulfill it. We often point to the Ten Commandments and say, look, I'm a pretty good person. I keep the Ten Commandments. Did you know that there are 16, excuse me, 613 specific laws in the Old Testament that a Jew must keep in order to be right with God? In fact, one of those commands, an example of them, was that if a child was disobedient continually, the parent was to take that child out to the city gates and the elders would stone them to death. Are you going to keep that law today? You get arrested. Did you know that one of the Ten Commandments is to keep the Sabbath day? 
You don't keep the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day runs from Friday sundown, I know because I've been in Israel when they were announcing it and everybody got off the streets, to Saturday sundown. We don't worship on the Sabbath day. We don't keep the Sabbath day. You're breaking the Ten Commandments. You're not keeping the law. We worship on the first day of the week because Jesus Christ arose from the dead on the first day of the week. The law has been fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been freed from the demands of the law. You see, we live under grace. We live in the dispensation of grace, the true expression of God and his holiness, his moral will is the law. But did you know that all of the demands of the law have been repeated in the New Testament? I don't keep Exodus chapter 20. I keep the principles, spiritual principles found in the New Testament. All nine of those Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. But they're no longer laws. They're spiritual principles for us to follow. God knew the Pharisees' hearts. God knows our hearts. He could see deep into their hearts. He knew they weren't trying to be right with God and fulfill the law. They weren't trying to be the protectors of it as they claimed. You see, God knows the hearts of men because his word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces the soul and spirit of every man to judge their thoughts and the very intentions of their hearts, says Hebrews. Jesus, being God, can see the hidden motives of men's hearts. He sees those who are simply religious versus those who are true followers of the Lord Jesus. Abraham Lincoln once said this, You can fool some of the people all the time, and all of the people some of the time, but you can't ever fool God. No, I changed that last part. The whole intent of the law was not for someone to be justified by it, but to be driven to God and his grace. To see one's need for a savior. It was intended to prod men to love God and to love others as themselves. The central purpose of the law was designed for an unlovable man to be able to come and love God. After all, all true religion is helping the poor and caring for orphans and the widows. The law is meant not to be a road to self-justification, but to selflessness. Now, Jesus gives us a clear example of how the law was being misused by religious men, by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and all the others. They used and abused it. They disregarded it, and they twisted, and they turned it for their own purposes. Perhaps there was a conversation that took place that's not recorded in Scripture here. I don't know. Perhaps this conversation ensued with a Pharisee asking Jesus about the purpose of the law and how they were disregarding it. Maybe. I don't know. The verse seems to be just shoved in here, a little bit out of place. But I think if you think logically, you can see its relation to the subject that Jesus is talking about, the law. The context here. We're not prepared for it. The context doesn't prepare us for a discussion of law, uh, of uh, marriage and divorce, I should say. This is simply an example of how they took the law and twisted it and turned it for their own use. Jesus states unequivocally in this verse that a man who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. That's exactly. That's exactly what they were doing, and they were justifying themselves. Look at me at verse 18 where Jesus says, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced 
from a husband commits adultery. Pretty cut and dry. That's the teaching of the book of Deuteronomy, taken straight from Moses. What Jesus is doing here is showing the Pharisees how they were outwardly obeying the law, but inwardly circumventing it for their own desires. He shows the true conditions of their heart by exposing their evil practices in marriage. Instead of ministering to and being the spiritual guides, a spiritual guide for fellow Jews, they were showing through their example how you could twist and turn and get around the law, how you can make yourself wealthy and how you can have all the women that you want on a whim. They were more interested in money than God. They were more interested in their sex life, their flesh, than they were in the law. Their lives were not intent on protecting the law, but indulging the flesh. They were false teachers. They were false teachers. And Jesus shows them by the way that they were interpreting the law of Moses when it came to marriage. And in fact, they mocked the law by the things that they were doing. God never intended for there to be divorce. That was the intentions of God. God hates divorce, according to Malachi. Marriage was meant to be a lifelong union between two people that only ended at death of one of the partners. Marriage was meant to be a lifelong union between a man and a woman. Did you get that? Okay. But the Pharisees allowed all sorts of silly things into the law to change its meaning. Moses did allow divorce, but that was for the, because of the hardness of men's hearts. In Deuteronomy 24, 1, it says this, When a man takes a wife and marries her, it happens that he finds no favor in, her, in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. He writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it into her hand, and sends her out of his house. That's what Moses said. But as time passed and it came down to the age of the Pharisees, the question came to be, what does that little phrase mean? What does that phrase mean? Some indecency. Some indecency. How can we stretch the meaning of that? Well, what did they do? They had schools of thoughts within their religious uh, paradigm. You had the school of the Pharisees, which divided into the school of Shammai, which had a very narrow view of divorce. They said that divorce could only be permitted for sexual unfaithfulness on the part of the wife. The school of Hillel, however, was much more liberal, and they had a wider interpretation of the phrase, some indecency. They opened the door to just about anything. You could get divorced if the wife burned dinner. You could get divorced if she talked to a stranger on the street. You could get a divorce if she talked too loud and her voice could be heard at the next door neighbor. You could get divorced if you found someone who was more pretty than she. But Yahweh had purposed from the very beginning from creation that it should be one man and one woman for life. Now, I know there are many divorced people here in our congregation. Don't Take this verse and run with it. This is meant by Jesus as an example of how the Pharisees were misusing the law. We are no longer under law, but we are under grace. 
So when the Pharisees came up with all these bogus reasons to get divorced, they were really mocking the moral will of God. By the way, you know what Jesus is actually saying here? If you commit adultery, which is what he's accusing the Pharisees of, the punishment for adultery was stoning by stoning to death. So Jesus points to the Pharisees and says, the law, was, law which you claim to respect and protect, you've twisted and turned for your own wicked desires. Now please keep in mind that Jesus is speaking directly to these Pharisees, the protectors of the law. And he's saying that your time has come to an end. The dispensation of the law is over. You were supposed to accurately understand it and communicate it to others. Instead, you've used it and abused it. So what does all this mean? Well, remember back to the parable that preceded it, verses 1 through 13? What God is saying here, I believe, is that there is a change of administration going on. That the steward, who had been unfaithful, to the landowner was an example of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the leaders of Israel who had been unfaithful to God and there was a change of administration in the household of God. No longer was, was the world of God to be administered by his law, but that was done over with, finito ended. The unfaithful steward was removed and in his place was, pla- was put a faithful steward. So a new administrator had taken over. Now, how can we apply this to our lives today? What does this mean for you and me? Today, we are no longer under the household rules of the law. We've been freed from that nonsense. Let me illustrate, you, illustrate this by asking you a question. Do you remember what the Jews were called in the Old Testament? Do you remember from your Sunday school class, your studies? Do you remember what God called them? He called them the children of Israel. And like children, the Jews needed to be told how and what to do. What time to get up, what time to go to bed, what to eat, when to make their beds, when to get up and go to school, what to do as far as chores. They were treated like children. In this case, the children of Israel were led by their noses. God literally led them with a pillar of fire and a cloud. He told them everything that they could should and should be doing and shouldn't be doing. There was a strict set of rules to follow. He gave them two simple tablets and then added 613 laws for them to follow. And what did they prove? They proved they were children. They were too immature to follow and obey. Now let me ask you, my dear ones, this morning, what does God call us today? He calls us his friends. Jesus says we are his friends not children. We follow spiritual principles, not laws. We are called to become mature in Christ. We are called not to follow the rules of the law, a rigid set of rules, but to allow God to work in our hearts and minds through the Spirit of God and the Word of God. We live in a new dispensation. We have a new administration We are the stewards of this age. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples, for I say to you, unless your righteousness surpass, surpass, surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfection is impossible. I can't even get out of bed without breaking the law. 
I can't have a conversation with someone else without sinning, most likely. As we go through our day, we sin multiple, multiple times. I can never be perfect. I cannot surpass the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. So I am just out of luck, right? No! The household rules have been changed. There's a new standard. That new standard is forgiveness in Christ. I've been given the free gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. It's not by anything I do. He's already done everything necessary. Christ, when he died on the cross of Calvary, said, it is finished. The debt has been paid. My duty is to love Christ, to receive him as my personal Savior, to trust in him and him alone. Quit trusting in self. Quit trusting in rule-keeping. Quit trusting in trying to please God. You can't do it. The only thing you can do is trust in the Savior. God's provided the way through the Messiah. He's opened the door to the presence of the Father. All are welcomed via his Son who came to save those who were lost. You see, we've only scratched the surface of the meaning of the book. We've only scratched the surface of the meaning of this book. There is so much more. Let us covenant together as brothers and sisters in Christ to find that meaning to apply to our lives and to live holy, godly, and righteously, not by our doing, but by the Spirit's doing in and through us. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful for your work and our lives. It's nothing that we do. It's all done by you, your Spirit, and your Word. Help us, Lord, to... Keep trotting this road to the life on the other side. Help us, Father, to trust in you, to live for you, to admit our failures, and to always embrace the Lord and trust him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.